Max Haven is a writer and teacher and Canada Research Chair in the Radical Imagination. In this interview, I talked to him about his most recent book, Palm Oil, The Grease of Empire, a new entry in the Vagabond series of books that Max edits for Pluto Press. It's a series that tries to create a venue for, as he says, writing that engages with contemporary struggles and that tries to invent new ways of offering the public radical ideas. Palm Oil is an interesting intervention in the sense that we have books like it, which investigate the history of a commodity, but it's distinct from other examinations of the food system, like Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma, for example, which Max suggests tend to strip the description of a system from the story. That sort of structural critique might theoretically alienate some readers, he says, because the reader might approach the text with the expectation of mastery or an investment in gleaning from the act of taking in ideas some sense of themselves as an autonomous, knowing subject. Max is always attempting to articulate an opposition to that sort of individualist self-empowerment and says that he also is, is constantly both proposing and expressing discomfort with the use of the inclusive pronoun we. He doesn't want to imagine that the idealized reader, the audience of his text, will come away necessarily empowered by the information. He's more interested in the imagination as an undetermined thing and how we come to imagine the world and our place in it as always unfolding and folding in on itself. He talks about his high tolerance for pessimism here, which he realizes not everyone shares, and reflects on how that specific threshold for the negative might allow him to consider the nightmarish history of palm oil. It's a history that is in many ways written in blood and fire, and one that opens up epistemic rifts. That idea of epistemic rifts, however, is more rooted to the moment where you, as he says, encounter another and realize your traditions are particular rather than universal. This is something that looking at the history of palm oil clearly yields. And so the history he offers is the history of something so sublimely complex that in a sense, no imagination can quite grasp all of the entanglements the substance represents. He wants us to attempt to dwell with that immense complexity and also the fact that it's a complex and yet not intractable problem. Ultimately, his point is that there are solutions to the problem of exploitation alienation and the eco-side that the palm oil industry produces, but those solutions have to come from the grassroots. To quote him here, the job of experts is to listen to the people who live in relation with each other and to the land. To listen to these people and lend a hand if necessary. Self-determination is at the core of his argument here, but it's a self-determination that isn't easy. It realizes the depth of entanglement the fact that accepting local self-determination will likely drive up the price of commodities and potentially mean we have to forego particular things in order to mitigate against social and environmental harm. He says it's imperative that we learn to de-fetishize commodities and perhaps fetishize instead the density of our entanglement. But what would that mean? It might mean moving past confining logics that confuse the issue. The notion of inflation within economics, for example, he says the debate over the inflation crisis we're currently undergoing misses the problem. The fact that it's not rising prices, but extreme levels of global inequality, whereby certain people are deprived of the economic power and social agency to meet their basic needs. 
Scarcity is something that we must politicize. So too is sacrifice. Whose sacrifice? This is the key question in palm oil. Human sacrifice, despite the undecided nature of its history, is consistently something practiced by elites for expedient reasons. What are those reasons? And why are they considered reasonable? If it's acceptable to sacrifice some for the good of the many, who gets to make that determination? And how does the logic of sacrifice get naturalized? Congratulations, first of all, on uh, this book that's that's launching today, uh, the, on this day of our recording. It's a beautiful short book. It's like such a it's such a great showcase in a way for the Vagabond series. I would say, you know, like not a word is wasted in this book. Um, <laughs> In this book, it seems like to me you're more in tune in some ways with um, the tangible and the material than you have been at any point in your career. It's not that your books have been, you know, typically like high theory and so on, but like this book, it seems uh, while it's you know e experimental in in a variety of ways, um, you know, it's it's not an, a, a straight history basically. Um, I wondered if you could speak to, yeah, like how stitching it into the Vagabond series maybe inspired you to shift away from a more overtly theoretical perspective than, than you maybe have had in the past. Um, and, and to focus more materially on like the stuff itself of palm oil. Sure. Um, it's a great, it's a great and complex question. Let me start by saying that I think like the whole Vagabond series was inspired by a constant refrain. I would hear from, reviewer two and sometimes reviewer one of uh, academic manuscripts I'd send into journals where they would say that like, you know, they, they often liked what I was arguing, but they felt that it was too polemic. And I kept on hearing mm -hmm. this strange, uh, you know, response that it was too polemic. And it, it frustrated me a great deal because, you know, um, being someone who's trained in cultural studies and critical theory, I, I was under the impression that we were always supposed to do work that was politically engaged. And we also work in a field where we fundamentally question the principles of kind of enlightenment discourse that would claim that there's somehow some like easy distinction that could be made between sort of like impartial, uh, you know, social commentary and then this thing we call polemic. And so this, mm -hmm. this kind of um, response kept eating away at me, and I kept on feeling that there was a need for a venue for serious writing um, that was really uh, at a high level of um, rigor uh, in terms of the ideas presented and the, the data presented, but that also wouldn't shy away from either a polemical tone that was directly engaged with struggles of the day or that was experimental, that encouraged writers to try new things in terms of how do you express an idea? How do you share an idea? Um, and so the Vagabond series kind of started in that uh, state of mind. And luckily, the folks at Pluto Press were keen to work on that experiment with me. And we've brought out, this is the fourth book in the series, as you mentioned. Uh, I'm really proud of uh, the other ones. I mean, as an author, I always have misgivings about my own work. So I'm, I'm, I'm also proud of this one in a certain way. Um, mm -hmm. I think maybe to the more direct question about this book in particular, I, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like on some way all of my work tries to really engage with the materiality of the world and material conditions as a 
as someone who's sort of trained in a Marxist tradition, you always begin and end with those material realities. And yet, I feel like in my previous writings, often I end up working really hard to try and understand the abstractions um, that racial capitalism produces in the world. And often I either forget or I just don't have time or space to actually get to many of the, the material implications. Um, so this book was a little bit different because it's really about like a, a very material thing, palm oil. Um, and yet what I was trying to do in the book is take inspiration from, I think, a lineage of radical writers, especially radical writers operating at the margins of or outside of sort of conventional academic traditions who are thinking about um, the way that theory is always already and also a form of radical storytelling. And here I think about authors like, you know, recently someone like Sadia Hartman or historically someone like Eduardo Galeano or even, you know, the patron saint of many of us, uh, Walter Benjamin, who are always trying to think through questions of form as well as content when it comes to doing this thing we call theory. Uh, recently, mm -hmm. and maybe I'll just end with this point um, to this question, recently I've been doing a lot of research into conspiracy theories, what are called conspiracy theories. And that's made me really question that I mean, of course, question what we mean by conspiracy, that amazing word, which literally means to whisper together, but also to really question what we mean by theory and what theory is hmm. and what theory does in this moment, especially in a moment, I think, and this ties back a little bit to the question of vagabonds as a series that intervenes in a certain milieu and, let's be honest, in a certain market, we're in a very strange moment where theory also has found its audience you know the recent mm -hmm. success of something like auto theory for instance indicates that like major publishers are interested in publishing theory and that's that's a bit strange and mm -hmm. and you know theory has become this kind of strangely known uh quantity and known commodity i'm not saying that cynically i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing or certainly of all the evils of capitalism it's certainly not the worst but it's interesting <laughs> Yeah, it absolutely is, right? Like to gauge the the blockbuster success of a book like Feminism for the 99% or something, you know, mm -hmm. where does that come from? Why is there a desire for that sort of framing um, that is probing, that is experimental and so on? Like, I think that's, we don't need to, as you say, be uh, cynical necessarily about it, but it's it's still probably productive as it were to be like sort of skeptical, curious about it. Um, you know, and, and I mean, like, uh, yeah, it leads nicely into the next question I had, which was about sort of the, the moves you make, the, the methods you take, um, and the inspirations that you find in some of these thinkers. Um, so like, I, you're going to hate this, but I, I feel like there's like a way in which this book is, you know, it's obviously more oppositional, it's decolonial, but you know, somebody like Michael Pollan has made a career out of writing really convincingly about the ways in which human beings are kind of co-constituted alongside specific substances, which is like a theme in the book. You know, Pollan has written about and talked about sort of cannabis and psychedelics as these mm -hmm. things that we uh, create and that create us in turn and so on. But like I say, there's none of that sort of oppositional perspective um, you know, he wants access to the, you know, the, he wants access to power as such. Um, whereas like for you, I, I see, um, the, 
I see Anna Singh as like a key kind of like, um, you know, uh, point of reference for you in the sense that, you know, she's talking about uh, and you, you cite saying, right, like the 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 ways in which um, capitalism, especially after the plantation of scene, the kind of detonating effect of colonization really is like predicated on uh, leveraging alienation and and exploitation as a means of producing um you know, uh, consolidating power and producing profit. And so like you're, you're, you're directly kind of tying your history of palm oil to kind of sings, uh, provocations. But like the, the interesting thing for me is that, you know, while you're saying like, it is a substance that has helped to create us, you're also just not like doing the pollen thing of, you know, mesmerizing your audience with, with the history. Like it's more about asking, questions um and trying to kind of you know poke at established ways of thinking about this substance that you know i've been curious about in the past like i was shocked in just reading content before reading this book on how crucial it's been historically mm-hmm. and surprised that its history wasn't more widely known um but you're right to point out it's like a largely invisibilized thing for a number of reasons but so you know in terms of your method specifically Um, You know, there's this point early on in the book where you say uh, the book tells something of a chronological story, but it's not a history. It's an attempt to trace the contours of something hidden in plain sight. Uh, And so the story, you say, is impressionistic and idiosyncratic. Um, Why not a history? Like, was it about (laughs) sort of avoiding uh, the mesmerizing effects of providing like a convenient history, like that position of false neutrality or impartiality that kind of comes from that? that kind of mastering of the history that certain books can, can provide, um, you know, what, what, what were your goals in, in specifically providing this like in more impressionistic idiosyncratic history? Sure. Um, yeah. And let me just say before I start that I think that Anand Singh book, the mushroom at the end of the world, which is a beautiful, wonderful book. And, and her, her work is so influential is a great example of, the thing we were just talking about, which is the incredible transit of theory into other worlds. I mean, I've seen that book on more bookshelves uh, in the last few months, uh, or, you know, on people's Zoom bookshelves uh, than than ever. And I think it really tells us something that's worth exploring. Maybe we'll come back to it. Why not a history? Um, Well, two reasons. Uh, Number one is that an incredible uh, scholar named Jonathan Robbins uh, just published last year a incredible um, book called Oil Palm, A Global History. Uh, mm-hmm. And this ties to the second reason. Um, Jonathan Robbins is actually a historian <laughs> and a rigorous <laughs> one at that. And I'm not. Um, I'm a, mm-hmm. a cultural critic and a kind of social theorist, I guess. So I don't have the skills to do a history and I don't have the intellectual community around me to hold me to the levels of um, sort of accountability and rigor that a historian would bring. And I also, as just a human being, I don't really have the kind of, um, the patience which I really admire that historians bring. I don't have Mm. the skills to go into the archive in the way that he did. Um, So this is all just to like kind of tip my hat to the folks who do those histories. I think they're really important. Um, Now, uh, Robbins is an academic historian. And then I think I'm probably closer in all all things considered to someone like Paulin, who's a kind of... um, you know, to use his own term, a bit of an omnivore. Um, he's interested mm-hmm. in looking at things from multiple different directions. The thing that I think um, a popular author like Paulin does in order to 
um, you know, sell books, which is his trade, and also to mobilize people's sympathies and solidarities, which is his sort of political gambits, um, is he strips out the thing that alienates most readers, which is a description of a system. Um, the, yeah. the liberal, I think the liberal imagination, and let's face it, people with liberal imaginations are typically those who will buy books that are critical of the status quo. Um, the liberal imagination is offended by the appearance of systems, I think, because it implies that that imagination itself is not autonomous. So like the liberal reader doesn't want to hear that there's a capitalist system and that that capitalist system has shaped how it understands the world because it jeopardizes that reader's sense that they can, you know, be the kind of eye in the sky observing the world and making judgments about it in the kind of Kantian sense. So I think that my mm -hmm. book is never going to reach that level of commercial success because on some level it it is participating in a kind of um, anti-colonial feminist and anti-capitalist critique, not only of palm oil and the palm oil industry, which others have done very well. For instance, Jocelyn Zuckerman published a great book last year called uh, Planet Palm. Which is a, a, she's a food journalist. It's a very well-researched, well-done book. My book also is trying to get underneath that and say, like, in fact, you know, there's nothing wrong with the humble oil palm. It never did anything wrong. It's what a mm. system we've created and of which we are all a part has turned that oil palm into. In fact, you almost worship it. There are times when you regard the magic of this, like, unbelievably, yeah, like, generative plant, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It, it's a it's an alchemical wonder. I mean, uh, both on its own, in, you know, on its own, if you just see it in a, in a forest and you recognize its place within biodiversity and its uniqueness, but also then in its interactions with humans and what and what it's enabled humans to make of their world yeah you know originally in west africa where it was cultivated for millennia uh, and used for a whole variety of purposes and then sort of since the industrial revolution as this as i put it grease of empire yeah um and i mean like so the book in terms of the um the the structure of it is more spatial in many ways than temporal right you talk about visiting uh, 19th century Liverpool, you talk about traveling with some tender seedlings on steamships, you talk about, you know, following the oil as it seeps through the fabric of our world, all of these kind of spatial metaphors. Um, but then there's also this framing of, of the book that uses, um, you know, uh, the question over and over again, whose punishment, whose story, um, which I thought was a really interesting way of kind of, you know, presenting the information, right? again, more probing than uh, just strictly explanatory in a lot of ways. Um, was that technique about cueing the reader to think about the ownership of this, of, of the problems that come from palm oil? Like this is, this is something that, you know, you're, you're really restless about in the book, especially, right. Is the kind of mm -hmm. the, the problematic way that like maybe a typical historical account might search for the source of responsibility and find it mm. uh, or think that it finds it um, at certain points. Like you're, you're kind of, you know, you, you kind of try to avoid that, you know, the who's fat chapter in particular is this really in-depth account of a lot of the humanitarian calamities and hyper exploitative practices that are created through palm oil cultivation. But that chapter comes, you know, toward the middle of the book. Um, and I wonder if like that, those, those moments of just kind of structuring it narratively were also 
calculated in the sense that like you're leading up to the moment of detailing so much pain um, and making that kind of like central to the book, but not like the foregrounded thing necessarily. Could you speak to the choice rhetorically of kind of positing these, these questions at the, at the head of each chapter? Yeah, um, certainly. I mean, the I, I'll give you the answer that'll make me sound smart in a second, but I'll start by just saying <laughs> that, you know, like this book especially was taken apart and put back together many, many times on the in, mm. in the shop, so to speak. Um, and I think the structure that it eventually had only came quite late in the game. In fact, this uh, book was originally intended to be only a chapter of my previous book on revenge, uh, because I was mm. interested in the and the punitive expedition that was waged against the uh, Edo Kingdom um, of in what is now Nigeria as an example of the way that imperialism kind of takes revenge against people who've never actually done anything really wrong. Um, so this is all to say that the structure is a little more accidental than intentional. Maybe what is at the cusp of something that is accidental and intentional about the structure, though, is it ends up playing with a couple of um, sort of key contradictions. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that there's sort of two contradictions at the core of the, the structure of this book. And one of them is between past and present. The book attempts to, in some ways, thread itself along a linear narrative. But I always want in the book us, the readers, to be aware that everything that's happening in the past has its echoes in the present and that the present in some ways is has been created by this past. So I feel on one level that's one of the structures. And here I really learned from reading the work of someone like Eduardo Galliano, as I was mentioning, or Sadia Hartman, who really have an amazing way of allowing you to recognize that, you know, the things that you see in your world have these histories and history rhymes and echoes in complex uh, ways. I think the second contradiction that informs the structure of the book is that I'm always both proposing and uncomfortable with the pronoun we. Mm -hmm. um, I, I went through many times and was quite selective about the moments when I would I would sort of hail us as readers into this we and also the moments when I wanted to the, to problematize that and challenge that. Because on the one hand, of course, like the, one of the major themes in the book is that what Paul Moyle can show us is that we, some we, is a global species. And we can no longer afford to make decisions as if we're national, we're, like, as, as if nations make any sense at this point in history. Or as if, you know, we should somehow be a competitive group of individuals as we've been so taught by neoliberalism and yet at the same time as i want to hold on to that idea of a kind of we as a political actor um i also don't want to cheapen the fact that we who are making this podcast and listening to this podcast have never set foot on a palm oil plantation and you know benefit on some on some level maybe not existentially but certainly materially from a from this commodity that so horrifically cheapens the lives of people who grow it and the various species whose habitats it destroys. So I think that contradiction between those two kinds of we and then also those two kind of timeframes of past and present animate some of the choices I made about structure in the book. Um, I hope I got it right, but I, I don't know in the end. Yeah, no, I, I think it, I mean, it certainly works, right? Like the, the book 
like I have, of course, this this degree of distance. I'm I'm an I'm an end user of your ideas in some sense. Like, and you you kind of present yourself as the end user of this substance. Um, I can see it being uh, a thing that moves people and and that you know changes uh, the way that people, especially the way that people relate to uh, the u- ubiquity of the commodity itself. Like, this is you know uh, where I'd like to take things in just a second. But you mentioned how uh, the book grew out of uh, revenge capitalism, uh, your last book, and how in particular this, um, you know, this uh, concern with a particular moment, this 1897 punitive expedition uh, uh, that, you know, you know, Britain, the colonizer leads to kind of subjugate, uh, um, you know, a threat to its, you know, colonial domination in the scramble for Africa. This is a, a book now that is attempting to show like how that particular event kind of reverberates in the present. And you talk about Black Panther, like there's a, you know, the opening of, of one of the chapters talks about Killmonger direct, directly referencing the theft of artifacts um, that would have come from that Benin expedition. Um, you know, this is an expedition you, you return to over and over again in the book, the destruction of um, Edo Kingdom. It's like one a moment, one moment among many. You could you could argue, certainly, yeah. Um, but you you're saying like like we need to summon this particular moment in order to understand the specific place of palm oil in the story. You know, you're you're talking about how that particular event, this punitive expedition, illustrates quote that capital's response to falling prices and saturated markets is simply greater violence to find new vistas of accumulation. Um, you know, how, how did this event for you, um, illustrate a lot of these sorts of, you know, ongoing, uh, technologies of, of imperialist domination? From a direct perspective, it actually had to do with the circumstances under which I began to pay attention to palm oil at all. And that was around Mm. 2011. I started teaching at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. Uh, which is quite a well-known art college in Canada, known for conceptual art and kind of considered to be one of the more radical political art colleges in Canada. And I had been hired there uh, to teach material culture, which is not a subject I know a huge amount about, but I'd kind of gotten the job by suggesting that I had something to teach art students about capitalism. Mm -hmm. And in teaching my Introduction to Material Culture course, um, I was looking for a commodity that we could study throughout the entire term and use to unpack many, many different relations. And I struck upon palm oil somewhat accidentally because I was I, I was actually at the time trying to find an example of how sculptures change their purpose depending on their space of exhibition. So I looked at the case of what have become to be known as the Benin bronzes, which were a set of uh, ornamental and ceremonial items that the British looted from the Edo kingdom after their uh, punitive expedition and now uh, sit in the British Museum. Weirdly, they sit in the British Museum almost directly underneath where Marx wrote Das Kapital, although Mm -hmm. that was several, like almost 50 years before they found their place in the museum. And they sit in a place called the Sainsbury Wing, which is named after the family that founded one of the UK's largest supermarkets, where today palm oil products are sold in such abundance. Um, And what I was pointing out to the students when I began with that example is that, you know, in 
the Edo kingdom, these, these sculptures had ceremonial purposes. They represented the kind of library, the national library of the people. They testified to royal lineages. Uh, they had incredible religious and ceremonial purposes in that society. And then when they were looted and brought to uh, Europe, they came to signify something very different when they were placed in the museum, which is they became a testament to the presumed superiority of European civilization. The loot came to sort of um, testify to the fact that now these objects had been had been appropriated by a so-called superior culture that they, you know, and the museum goer was encouraged to see themselves again in that kind of distanced liberal uh, framework, the eye in the sky that judges the world, um, the transparent eye, as uh, Denise Ferreira da Silva calls it. Um, and, and so I started trying to teach that, and then that led me to realize that, in fact, the reason why the British had invaded the Benin Kingdom was that they were seeking to secure uh, its quite lucrative palm oil plantations and also to eliminate a threat to their dominance in the region. But as you point out, I mean, the the, the, the Edo Kingdom invasion, the, the Benin punitive expedition is quite famous now, largely because of the bronzes, which are scattered in museums across Europe and, and the subject of great attempts by the Nigerian government and activists to reclaim them and, and restitute them um, and repatriate them to Africa. Um, but it's not certainly not the most um, damning of empire's crimes of the 19th century. It's but one of what Mike Davis calls late Victorian holocausts. There are many, mm -hmm. many, many. I mean, in terms of the number killed, it doesn't even it doesn't mm -hmm. even compare to what happened in the Bengal famine, for instance, or, you know, uh, many of these other circumstances. But in it, I find a really useful um, starting point for a second reason as well, which is that the, the reason why the British claimed they had to go in and uh, do regime change in the Edo Kingdom, as we would call it today, was that they accused the, um, the Oba, the king of the Edo Kingdom, sort of the religious uh, hierophant of committing acts of human sacrifice. Now, there's right. no there's no doubt that there was something that was either human sacrifice or capital punishment, but historians argue about what its significance was and how frequent it was. In any case, the British painted uh, the Edo Kingdom as a as this what they called like the city of blood. In fact, some say it in, the the images of it inspired uh, the first Indiana Jones movie, but I've never been able to confirm that directly. Uh, but these sort of salacious images of uh, bestial African uh, warlocks sacrificing victims uh, became, it became sort of the furniture of the imperialist imagination in that age. Um, and what it permitted was not only the justification for the invasion, but also the invisibilizing of the sacrificial characteristics of imperial capitalism of the day as well. You know, for instance, in the Edo Kingdom, which was actually sacrificed on the altar of British imperialism, as well as millions of lives in Africa and elsewhere in that period, the sacrificial characteristic of capitalist imperialism, imperialism both then and now, sort of gets hidden by the salacious defamation of these other groups. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a pattern that recurs again and again. And it, it allowed me to bring in this question of sacrifice and human sacrifice throughout the book on palm oil um, 
you know, I, I, we were toying with different subtitles that would actually include a clearer reference to sacrifice because it ends up being such an important theme. Right, right. It absolutely does. And I, I you know, I want to talk about that, um, the way that you kind of problematize the, the origins of sacrifice. But to speak to origins, like one of the things you mentioned in the book is that fetish, the term fetish is mm. itself a looted concept, you call it. Um, and, and one that originally seeks to racially differentiate between the kind of investment of magic in objects and the like rationality of the European subject. You talk about this in terms of the weaponization of the word fetish. Um, and so it's like throughout the book, there's this, there's this concern with sort of um, colonial cosmologies or these imperialist epistemologies that use the other's brutality as a kind of foil uh, the racialized other's brutality as a foil, a means of like foisting responsibility for cruelty onto the other and justifying punishment. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I, I really took away this idea that the event of this punitive expedition illustrated how the colonial depiction of a certain sort of human sacrifice as inhuman justified mass extermination. And, and I think you can see the ways in which that kind of reverberates into the present, but in really, really complex ways where sacrifice just, it doesn't register as sacrifice. Um, but yeah, so, but, and, and, and maybe we can like get to that question uh, through a concern with like the fetish that we might you know, I mean, when we talk about fetish, we we often think like sexual fetish, but, mm -hmm. you know, commodity fetishism is is like it runs in some ways parallel this kind of like, you know, pleasure seeking through buying. Um, and you say like that form of pleasure seeking is like predicated in many ways on unseeing the complex material reality that is at the base of, you know, the supply chain. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, like so much of the story is about um, what you call the holographic shard of a gr greater capitalist capitalist totality um, that that is that is sort of inhabits the commodity, and so like you know the text uh, you know your book is about painting this picture of sort of the real roots of things uh, that we often take for granted as a source of pleasure. You know, so when we go to our favorite art supply store and buy paint, or when we buy like our you know, our comfort food, instant ramen noodles, can, some kind of canned food, uh, you know, candles, soap, all of these commodities that materialize as though they come from nowhere. Like you're, you're saying we need to remember the stories of those like objects to some extent. Yeah. Um, you know, like it's, it's, it's obviously about trying to connect it all through this like base substance and the forms of exploitation that allows it to be so cheap. But um, I guess like, you're, you've already kind of spoken to this, but I wonder, like, did it, did it start with the palm and lead to the noodles? Um, or did you begin to see connections by thinking about, like, the specific commodities and perceiving the ways that they led back in mystified ways to this, like, magic substance? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that you, you note so many times in the book is this idea that commodities like palm oil are, like, made cheap through structural and sometimes literal violence and oppression. That's something that you're maybe uniquely aware of as a cultural studies researcher who's just like attempts to be in tune with those forms of invisibilized exploitation. Um, you know, but but most of us are these end users who need the the story of of paint, of noodles, of canned food to be uh, told to us, right? The end users, as it were, of your research. 
um, you know, how did you, how did you sort of figure out a way to articulate it by foregrounding these particular like exemplary products, basically? I mean, maybe I take a step back from that for a second before I approach mm -hmm. that particular question and just say that I think what ties this book to my previous books is a, a persistent and abiding fascination with the power of the imagination. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's a book about a material object, palm oil, and all of the material objects it makes, including ramen noodles, uh, you know, shampoo, uh, biofuels, you name mm -hmm. it. I mean, it, palm oil is in so many things. Um, but on another level, what I'm wondering about in this book is how we come to imagine the world and our place in it um, through the things we use every day. And as, as a materialist and as a, as a Marxist scholar, someone working in the Marxist tradition at least, I'm always interested in the way that the imagination is shaped by material reality and in turn helps us shape material reality. So I wanted to locate some of the commodities that I speak of in the book, including ramen noodles, which I'll come back to in a second, in a longer tradition of cultural criticism. And, and here I leaned heavily on the really wonderful work of Anne McClintock that many, many people have read over the last 20 years since it was published in, in her great book, Imperial Leather, where she talks about the way that soap advertisements in the 19th century really helped broadcast what she calls sort of commodity racism and uh, work at the intersection of class, race, empire, and gender to sort of recruit working class and middle class people in Europe to a kind of imperialist worldview that attempted to remedy class conflict and also attempted to kind of mediate the transformations of gender that were occurring in the late 19th century. So, you know, soap was usually made at home and was not used that frequently before the late 19th century. But as palm oil imports flooded into Europe, it became cheap and plentiful and it became associated with, with the cleanliness that would become associated with whiteness in contrast to all of those allegedly unclean non-white others. Um, a, a similar thing happened with candles and a similar thing happened with tin cans, all of which required the material stuff of palm oil to create. So uh, McClintock points out that this was a kind of fetishism on two levels. And you're right to point out that like there's a number of different ways that this term gets used. From the Freudian perspective, the fetish is a kind of substitution, um, something that you become obsessed with at some point in psychosexual development that, it, that acts as a kind of substitute for what you really need. So you at some point have a traumatic incident, maybe just a normal traumatic incident, like no longer being allowed to feed at your mother's breast, and you substitute the breast with an obsession with, I don't know, balloons, or, you know, an obsession with uh, grinding your teeth, who knows, you have some sort of fetish that gives you a surrogate satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And for Freud, that's not necessarily a problem, but it can become problematic. And, you know, Freud's always interested in the moment when these things become, you know, as he puts it, uh, you know, not, you know, he's interested in curing disease and making it so it's just good old fashioned misery, uh, <laughs> to paraphrase. So, you yeah. know, lots, everyone's a fetishist for Freud. It's just some people are a little more fetishist than others. Um, and then on the flip side, you have Marx, who in his writing about commodity fetishism, he's, he, yes, he's interested in that kind of romance of the commodity and how the commodity comes to be sort of the beloved object of the consumer. But he's also interested in something deeper too, which is this process of forgetting, where mm. the, the working class consumer especially forgets that in fact the commodity that they're buying is the product of 
the labor of their own class, their own labor in a collective sense. And they see it as simply the magical product of capitalism. Now, mm -hmm. here I have to turn away from McClintock uh, for all the benefit that she does us and towards a really fascinating book that was recently published by J. Lauren Matori called The Fetish Revisited. Matori is an anthropologist of West African religions in diaspora and points out that in fact, the entire idea of the fetish, as you were noting, was stolen itself. And it was a it was a term that was kind of invented or, or appropriated when European traders started in um, encountering African religions. And having this moment that David Graeber also speaks about, where they sort of recognize that, in fact, they Europeans were also the fetishists. You know, the Portuguese famously show up in West Africa with a bunch of crosses and holy relics and, you know, the, the transubstantiation and, and the Catholic Church of, of, you know, a wafer into the body of Christ and wine into the blood of Christ. I mean, this is kind of weird fetishistic stuff. Mm. And in order to kind of deal with the, the kind of epistemic rift that can open up when you encounter another and recognize that your traditions are particular rather than universal, they began a centuries long process of um, defaming and um, like sort of casting under African spiritual traditions as sort of mere fetishism. And the idea here was that these these quote-unquote savage others worship objects and don't realize that the objects are things that they themselves have created, mm -hmm. um, that they sort of become enchanted by their own social productivity. And in the 19th century, the kind of critical theorists – um, and it's not accidental that these critical theorists are racial, as, as Matori puts it, racial parvenus. You know, uh, both Freud and Marx were Jewish racialized subjects within Europe, trying to understand and critique Europe from within. Marx and Freud turn this notion of the fetish back on the European and say, aha, in fact, we are the true fetishists. Look, says Freud, at all these ways that we become obsessed with objects and substitutions. Look, says Marx, the way we become obsessed with commodities. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm working in, in these two traditions, and it's a bit of a tricky part of the book because on the one hand, there's a critique of the material economy, there's a critique of the symbolic economy, and there's a critique of the very terms that we use to discuss the intersection of the material and symbolic economy, which is to say the fetish. Now, maybe the final thing I would say about it is, like, I'm, the book also tries to do another very tricky thing, and I don't know if I pull it off, which is to say, like, I actually don't think we can do without this thing we call the fetish. You know, there's a long tradition of Marxist scholarship that suggests that if we do our research well, we will complete the Enlightenment project of a world without fetishism, right? A world that is seen clearly through facts. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not averse to that kind of position that is maybe most most uh, courageously put forward in a left-wing perspective by someone like Noam Chomsky, who's like, doesn't have a lot of time for kind of the postmodern discussion about the construction of truth. He's like, there are facts, there's a real world, we can study it, we can measure it, you know. True, and yeah. based on the study and measure of the real world from a left-wing perspective, we could build a, a better world. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not throwing that out the window. I don't think we should go sort of into the full uh, postmodern imaginary um, and yet at the same time, I'm not convinced because through my study, after years of studying the imagination, that we can do without these kind of props. And, and to come back to palm oil, you know, this book addresses a, a sublime topic, which is the, the many, many global entanglements that we humans have with one another and with 
the rest of the world through palm oil. There's no imagination that can encompass all of that. It is literally sublime in the Kantian sense of something that mm. exceeds the compass of the imagination. Right. We are always going to be looking for props we're all, for, for the imagination, for our conceptualization. We're always going yeah. to be looking for shortcuts. Some kind of thread, yeah. Yeah, some sort of thread, some sort of summary, some sort of magical thing that represents yeah. the depth and complexity of entanglement. And so what I would like to, like, there's one way of looking at this book that that we could have promoted it as kind of like the defetishization of palm oil. You mm. fetish, you fetishists of palm oil, look upon what you've created of the world and weep. Now see for real that you know this is um, this is the world as it is. I just don't think that's actually going to motivate people, and I don't think it's actually realistic. What I'd prefer us to think through is like in the palm oil is a sphinx with a riddle for us and the answer to the riddle which can't be spoken by a human tongue is the depth and complexity of human entanglements with the more than human world uh through a system called capitalism that transforms us as we transform it it's like you you could have five thousand pages and not even scratch the surface of that complexity and this mm -hmm. book is only 120 pages so what i hope for is that in some ways I would cheekily say perhaps a different kind of fetishism. I want us to focus our attention on palm oil as a um, as a microcosm, as a kind of fetish that helps our imagination grapple with relationality. And that's ultimately what every fetish is: is it's a way of interfacing with the the, the density of relationality of the world. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think we can do fetishism in a much less violent way <laughs> um, yeah, than, no. than it's been done. I like that. I mean, and I, I think like this is one of the things that the book uh, points out is, in, is like so limited is the kind of inherently individualistic consumer advocacy that has kind of, um, you know, reigned supreme in terms of trying to communicate the, you know, the costs, the human costs of palm oil you know, you say in the book, fetishism also transpires within the advocacy, activism, and NGO activity around palm oil today. For understandable tactical reasons, many campaigns take fetishistic targets, such as the plight of the charismatic orangutan deprived by deforestation of its habitat. Like, that is a tactic that you're saying uh, is fetishistic and that doesn't really work to provide people with even a glimpse of the sublime kind of complexity of this problem. There's a, a meaning, like a well-meaning, but ultimately uh, not effective attempt there to capture people's attention when in, in a world of just, you know, just noise and, and, you know, intersecting and competing mm -hmm. messages. And you're saying like, you know, and I, I see an, uh, analogies to like the plastics in industry. There's this mm -hmm. lovely documentary, Plastic Wars, uh, that does the work of trying to expose the ways that the plastics industry, this multi-billion-dollar, you know, petroleum industry, is really displacing so much responsibility by talking about consumer and end-user education and responsibility. Like it's just not a solution. Uh, and so, like focusing on our co-constitution, our implication, our complicity with this substance, to me is is more troubling, but that's the point. Like, you, you know, you, you're using we to some extent in the book, but it's a, it's a we that you hope is possible. Mm -hmm. And, and to kind of go back to one of the other things you were saying, like this idea that, you know, our imagination is shaped by materials, but also something that shapes those materials. Um, you know, this, this to me is like the, the one 
you know, not the only, but like the kind of primary source of a certain um, optimism of the will that exists in the book. Like you say, we are a species uniquely capable of transforming ourselves as we transform the world. Uh, I think that's undeniable, but like, it kind of feels hard to accept as a source of inspiration in a sense, like you're, you know, you're citing Sylvia Winter a few times in the book and her, I think, under-recognized work. It, Catherine McKittrick has been really good at sort of like mm-hmm. making Winter m- more known and and worked with um, in theoretical circles anyway. Um, but you're, you're citing her work, theorizing the extent to which we are both things. Like we are both bios and mythoi. We are organic beings and we are storytelling animals. Cassie Thornton articulates it in her book, The Hologram, this idea that, you know, we are uniquely able to mentally exert a storytelling force on the world. But the reason I think it's like hard to accept as a source of inspiration is that that seems to have done so much more harm than good. Mm. I think about the fact that, you know, there are these reports that people in Canada feel have never been more wary of the role of religion in society. If you kind of zoom out, there is this sense that uh, I guess, I mean, a measurable sense that religion has served as a destructively controlling force in human history, like a, a, a form of fetishism that is largely been violent. Um, and so it's like, it's just hard for me in some ways to accept this idea that the, the radical imagination, um, and I sound so pessimistic in saying this, can be like a source of, of sort of positive or liberatory transformation. But I guess I want to ask you where you're at. I mean, I think you are in many ways sort of like you make a you make a point of being more intimately attached to movements that actually embrace a narrative of transformation that actually recognizes the need to reinvent uh, the system, to make it less deadly um, in terms of our mutual entanglement. Where do you, I guess, derive some sort of optimism of the will from in this moment, you know? Well, I think we just have to admit it's very pessimistic times. Um, you know, it's yeah, and and you know, there's there's no shortage of evidence for a reasonable person to come to the conclusion that we're doomed. Um, yeah, and so you know, I don't want to I don't want to diminish that evidence. Sure, sure. I think I see a number of things happening. Some of them in the around the question of palm oil. Some of them elsewhere that I think are reason to be i wouldn't i i don't know i don't really go in for optimism or hope really i mean right, there right. are inspiring forms of struggle um but i also have a high tolerance for pessimism as a person which i realize as i get older not everyone does <laughs> so um let me let me say that i think now um there do there do appear on the global landscape groups of um scholars journalists and people affected by palm oil, people, workers, indigenous groups, uh, land users who work in the and live in the shadow of palm plantations, who are beginning to come together um, and start to develop their own proposals. In the book, I sort of summarize a recently published uh, plan uh, for a just transition, which really refocuses mm-hmm. attention away from like, oh, big NGOs putting pressure on governments and corporations are going to solve this problem, um, thanks to consumer pressure, and refocuses us on the fact that like the solutions need to come from people in relation with each other in the land, and that the job of experts is to listen to those people and 
lend a hand as needed rather than to come in with solutions from the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that then it puts the onus on those of us who are importers of palm oil to recognize the changes that would happen if, for instance, all of those communities were allowed to transition to a sustainable model, which would essentially mean that the cost of palm oil would go way up, the supply of palm oil would go way down. We would have to find other ways of getting this substance, or we would have to forego certain commodities, or we would have to pay a lot more. Um, When you start to ask those questions, you start to ask much deeper questions quite quickly about the global economy, about why certain forms of labor and certain commodities are cheap, why some countries seem to have so much money to buy the the fruits of other people's labor and some other countries have so little. So essentially, as what I what I take inspiration from in, as re, in researching this book is that if you start pulling that thread and you start following the uh, implications of small grassroots changes to their inevitable global conclusions, you have to start thinking globally and in a way that is not intentionally but incidentally radical. Because mm-hmm. if we were to tomorrow, if we could snap our fingers and erase palm oil from the world as if it never existed, it would mean a, quite a radical change for the global economy, uh, let alone to say we want a world in which no one is sacrificed on the altar of somebody else's profit. I mean, that would require a revolution, maybe not a revolution like anything we've ever seen, but it would require some sort of revolution. Hmm. Um, so on an abstract level, and maybe in the palm oil situation, I think that's where I take inspiration from. I think that increasingly also experts, journalists, NGO workers are heeding what communities have been saying for generations now, which is, you know, in that memorable phrase, nothing about us without us. It's not enough to have a bunch of like educated NGO people and academics sitting around a table in Europe somewhere making decisions. It has to, those decisions need to come from the grassroots. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a slow and long process of building solidarity. Now, I think maybe conversely, what we're seeing around the world is young people are rising up um, and rebelling against climate injustice as as they're framing it and rising up against ecocide and rising up against extinction um, in very inspiring ways. And I think we're only going to see more of that as years come, uh, years to come. And I think that those protests are going to get more militant and I welcome the militancy. Um, you know, as I wrote in my previous book on revenge, like, I don't understand why we have to talk endlessly about climate grief and we don't talk at all about climate revenge, except Kim Stanley Robinson, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in his book, um, uh, The Ministry for the Future, where he actually does pr- present the idea that any just and sustainable change is going to be a, a pincer effort between, on the one hand, people working on the level of policy and economics, and then the other very militant social movements that are willing to target those who are benefiting from and creating the climate crisis. You know, it's a whirlwind that will be unleashed and I don't doubt it will happen. At some point, I think young people are much more aware of the, this depth and uh, of entanglement. I think it comes back perhaps to some of the things that we started by talking about, which is why theory has become so popular in a way. I think it's because an emerging generation on the one hand is more educated than previous generations formally um, and are encountering these kind of texts in school. But I think they're also looking for and have an appetite for complexity in a way that previous generations perhaps didn't. And I think that's very promising. 
I also have a hunch that the forms of rebellion that young people are staging are not always as direct as older generations would like to think. So, you know, for, from a social movement studies perspective, which is always quite mechanistic and limited in most cases, if you were like, oh, how are young people uh, rebelling against the climate crisis? You would look for people holding signs in the streets saying, you know, less carbon emissions and, you know, taking action against extractive companies. But I think also we need to recognize that young people's activism and protagonism takes other indirect forms as well. So I've done some research uh, with, with my colleague, R.S. Comprosos Athanasiu and A.T. Kingsmith around the so-called epidemic of young, young people's anxiety and me mental health mm -hmm. and, and young people's refusal through that discourse to engage in the kind of capitalist rat race to exclude themselves and say like no i'm not i'm not participating on your terms the only language that's given to young people to do that increasingly is around mental health and i'm not in any way diminishing or suggesting that mental health uh diagnoses are not real or that you know it's only just a sham to get out of work i'm not i'm not saying that what i am saying is that there is a rebellion going on at the level of the body mind that is occurring Mm -hmm. around us. I think we could also look to the way in which young people are increasingly turning away from the gender binary and moving towards, uh, you know, um, anti-binary forms of identification and sexuality as also an attempt to rebel against the kind of psycho-material, psychosocial, psycho-material world that's been created by their forebearers that's done so much damage. I mean, I think a lot of the queer, trans, and uh, anti-binary movements ultimately are about rejecting a certain model of what it means to be human that has been created through the violence of uh, the Enlightenment's entanglement with colonialism. And so if we're looking now to see, like, what is the state of our movements, yes, let's let's also pay attention to the, the clear movements that are in the street that are challenging, that are blocking pipelines, and that sooner or later will start engaging in acts of sabotage, um, those are important. But we should also look at the forms of rebellion that maybe don't yet even speak their own name as rebellion, that are being enacted as a resistance to not only capitalism as an economic system, but actually capitalism as a whole cosmology, as a whole way of piecing the world together, of making mm -hmm. sense of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think if you zoom out and you look at it from that perspective, it's, it's quite inspiring. Um, and I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic that um, this generation will, as Fanon put it, out of obscurity, uh, have its moment to, uh, you know, seize its potential and, uh, change the world. I mean, like the the way that that sort of transformation of consciousness can can be felt and seen is both, I think, in the transformation, the emergence of critical media, the emergence of you know educators who are interested in using um, you know uh, books that encourage experimental and and radical ways of thinking. But, you know, it, it also manifests itself as, as a backlash against those things, right? Like we're seeing an unprecedented mm -hmm. number of books banned from like public libraries and, and schools, especially in the United States. You mentioned the, you know, uh, the frontier of sort of trans liberation. Uh, mm -hmm. The most banned book, uh, I think, of last year was Genderqueer. Uh, this book by Maya Kobabe, like this, this memoir, this graphic memoir mm -hmm. um, that is a beautiful book, but that is seen as a threat. And, and there's a way in which I think your book is saying somewhat like obliquely to some extent that a focus on education 
can allow people to access a more like robust narrative of responsibility um, and like actively incorporate a structural view of things that might like liberate them from their own sense of just like individual anxiety, like connecting their anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, You talk about how the, you know, there's just uh, a need for texts and, and communicators that, you know, can articulate how things are both, as you put it, too big and too close. Like that, that, you know, phrase really stuck with me. Mm. And yeah, I mean, like in revenge capitalism, you talk about revolution. I mean, you talk about how our choice now as a species is between revolution or slow annihilation. And you say like any revolution against so violent a system is likely to have violent elements. So we're, we're reaching this moment where, um, and you know, that's, I don't think that's prescriptive of violence. It's just about like, you know, uh, being open to this kind of aggressively avenging spirit. Like you're not condemning that violence necessarily either. Like it's, it's this clear eyed sort of, um, view that says like, you know, look at the actual forms of structural violence that are invisibilized, like try to try to see it, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think this brings us to something that, that we do need to talk about, which is the way that the book theorizes sacrifice and the assigning of responsibility for sacrifice. Like you say that, you know, uh, you know, the most adept scholars scratch their heads at trying to kind of figure out what constitutes sacrifice. Um, and you yourself are asking questions. You're, you're not going to tie things up. You say, like, is it sacrifice if it's the unintended byproduct of an unregulated market? Um, but what you, what you say without sort of tying things up is that, um, you know, you're attached to the notion of sacrifice because it indicates how death and suffering get normalized. Um, and yeah, I can see how this book is an outgrowth of revenge capitalism because there you're also talking about this idea of systemic vengeance, uh, which names itself law or necessity, uh, and that's largely executed without any single human intending it. Um, so I guess the question is like, how has thinking about you know, specific forms of violence that are structurally sort of detached from spaces of decision-making, how it's thinking about that uh, in terms of this kind of continuum of sacrifice, sharpen your thinking on like systemic violence as such. Like, you know, you're talking about how a subtle shift in policy can, to encourage markets can lead to millions of needless deaths that are somehow imagined as accidental, incidental, or inevitable. Do you feel like you got a better picture of that in writing this this book? Yeah. I mean, like the metaphor that I used at the beginning of the of the book, it's sort of something that's hidden in plain sight. Um, and I always, you know, I always do this experiment as both a teacher and a writer of trying to like zoom out to look at the planet from afar and sort of squint and try and see the big patterns that are otherwise um, yeah, too big and too close to use that other metaphor. Mm-hmm. So and I, I feel like this is what I was trying to do with sacrifice as well. Um, again, a, a, that sacrifice story really began with trying to understand what happened um, in the Edo kingdom with the Benin punitive expedition and the way that sacrifice was leveraged and narratives of sacrifice were leveraged. But I think any there's something too big and too close about human sacrifice as well, because the reality is in one way or the other, almost all civilizations practice it. They practice it in very different ways. And it's strange. I mean, there was a period of anthropology where you had this kind of comparative anthropology where people would really try and understand what connects these traditions. 
And then at a certain point, sort of in the 80s and 90s, most anthropologists sort of gave up on trying to create those big explanations mm. for this um, tradition. Um, but one of the things that emerged sort of after that was a recognition that actually sacrifice is often practiced by elites. And it's often practiced for expedient reasons, which is, you know, to wit, that like you can get rid of your enemies pretty easily. So often the people who are sacrificed are enslaved people, they're vassals, they're prisoners of war, they're members of rival groups. Sometimes someone becomes a member of a rival group through the act of sacrifice. Um, and it's cloaked in the language of cosmological necessity. So the high priest or the priestly caste in a society that's committing human sacrifice, you know, justifies it before or after the fact by saying like, you know, they rarely celebrate it, but they'll usually say something along the lines of like, well, yeah, of course, cutting out the heart of this, uh, this poor jalobi over here, it's terrible. But look, you know, if we didn't do this, we would reap God's vengeance. Um, we, you know, it's, it's either this guy or this woman gets their, you know, their head cut off, or we're going to have a famine and millions of people are going to die. So what do you want? And, you know, within the cosmology that people share or that people are forced to share, that act of what today we would call risk management makes some degree of sense. Like it, if you believe in that cosmology, if you believe that there's a vengeful God who demands to be fed human flesh... Uh, and if you don't feed them human flesh, they're going to destroy your civilization, then, yeah, like, why you would have to be uh, brutally inhumane not to make that sacrifice. And my argument is that under capitalism, it's not that different, right? Like, mm -hmm. if you go to the kind of main proponents of uh, sort of a capitalist world, let's say the School of Economics at the University of Chicago, circa 1970, 1980, and you said to them, look, I mean, millions of people are getting killed in the palm oil industry and uh, so that we can have like cheap Twinkies uh, and uh, you know, we're, we're putting on the altar all of like massive biodiversity. Like, shouldn't we do something about this? They would say to you, don't touch the market. You know, I'm, I'm making it artificially simple here, but they'd be like, you know what? The market is providential. The market knows best. If you intervene in the market and deny its, sacrifice of flesh it will take revenge on us by actually making things worse for everyone right you think you're doing a good job by uh you know stopping the palm oil industry and and this is an argument actually made by the palm oil industry every time they get criticized they're like oh but we have the most yield per acre of any uh oil producing plants you know what do you want all of those millions of people who are surviving on you know, pennies a day in rural India who depend on palm oil for some 30% of their calories. Do you want them to go hungry? So yeah, sure, you're going to save the orangutan or you want a better working condition for the guy in the palm oil plantation in Malaysia. But, you know, think about the consequences and market knows best. Mm -hmm. And for me, and here I am again drawing on Sylvia Winter's notion of um, cosmology and the kind of cosmology of capitalist modernity and empire within this cosmology the sacrifice not only makes sense the sacrifice becomes invisible just as in the slave trade the sacrifice of millions of africans lives for this heinous atrocity became basically invisible and became you know and it was justified as this this was the march of progress within the cosmology of the world system at that time the deaths and the sacrifice almost became invisible or it was not human sacrifice because indeed 
the individuals being sacrificed weren't even considered to be fully human. Right. Um, so I'm trying, without being too pessimistic about you know human nature, which is not something I want to do, I do want to point out that there's a kind of echo or a rhyme in history here between, on the one hand, um, these many ways that civilizations have practiced human sacrifice over the ages and our own present capitalist system. And for a very particular reason, it's not just because I want there to be salacious you know, uh, to us to have a kind of salacious metaphor for capitalist violence. I mean, capitalist violence is bad enough. You don't need to dress it up by calling it sacrifice. You're not going to convince anyone. You know, no one's going to read the book and they'll be like, I had no idea capitalism was a system of human sacrifice. I'm going to be against it now. Mm -hmm. um, rather, it's to say that one of the ways that capitalism has legitimated itself is as the ultimate expression and highest triumph of modernity itself and the Enlightenment project. You know, the market represents this think meta-human thinking entity, this calculating entity, which is as Kant's, you know, ideal Enlightenment subject has no personal interests. It's simply taking in data and churning out prices. It's a kind of, um, like the corporation itself, it's this kind of dream image of humanity's own cosmological aspirations. Um, and we, you know, and especially there's a there's a whole set of philosophers, uh, sort of pro-capitalist philosophers who suggest this, that like the, the market is this kind of infallible knower of the world and the only entity that should be trusted to adjudicate human affairs. You know, an argument perhaps most uh, intelligently made by Hayek, um, you know, the founder of the Mont Pelerin Society and kind of the intellect, the philosophical godfather of neoliberalism. Um, and I'm trying to suggest that, in fact, in many ways, this is a cosmology like any other, and it has secreted within it its own logic of sacrifice, um, and that we need to kind of admit to that. Yeah. Uh, not only as a critique, but also then to also reckon with what it would mean to replace it with a different cosmology, and what the sacrificial cosmology of that replacement might be as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely curious to ask you about that sort of, you know, what would it mean to, you know, maybe replace it with, um, you know, an anti-work politics or, or you know, a degrowth politics, something new that is resistant to, you know, the rationality behind extraction. But, you know, to kind of um, maybe connect it to something that I see uh, talked about a lot today, you know, the, the you know, rising prices, inflation, right? Like this, this is something you've gestured to the idea that restoring like the dignity of labor, let's put it in many places where palm oil is cultivated would like inevitably drive up the cost of the product in global markets. You say like, that's not necessarily bad for workers or even consumers. That's maybe not the dominant logic. And I wonder if it's like the kind of inherent blind optimism of economics that makes it so hard to like for for economists, especially to like wrap their heads around inflation, like it over and over again, an NPR podcast, wherever you go, you get the sense that inflation is a phenomenon that economists just can't be clear headed about or explain in simple terms. Yeah. Is it like the, the kind of amoral nature of it that makes it impossible to think about the way like it's only something like Jacobin that's going to have articles on the ways that inflation might actually represent a positive development in certain senses, like what kinds of acts of from your perspective, economic translation, might it take for rising prices on staples to be regarded as something potentially good? It's just never seen as good. Yeah. Um, and yet we're seeing the ways in which 
you know, rising fuel prices in the States are further like consolidating power within the oil and gas industry where, you know, Biden is deciding to open up federal lands for oil and gas extraction. And, and, you know, Europe will not divest from Russian energy. There is this like battle over ensuring that energy prices stay low. And that battle is, is like waged supposedly on behalf of like working people. How in that context do you, do you, you know, change, change the cosmology to allow for rising prices to register as something uh, life-saving almost? I mean, maybe two, two parts of that question. I mean, I think first, like there is, there is something very, there's something that rhymes very closely between on the one hand, these moments when economists all turn to each other and say, uh, like, we can't explain this. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it happened after the 2008 financial crisis, when previously all these economists said that the financial economy was going to, it was going to be a boom without end. And now when you have this kind of like massive inflation, there's something very similar about that. And the moment when the high priests turn to each other in a culture that practices human sacrifice and say, well, we sacrificed a thousand people and like, there's still a famine. Mm. Um, yeah. And one of the things I point out in the book is that, you know, one of the things that anthropologists and historians speculate is that often European stories of the kind of grisly acts of human sacrifice in the Edo kingdom or of the Aztecs, for instance, they occur at a moment when the cosmology begins to break down, when the predictions that were made based on the cosmology no longer seem to hold and when the priestly caste feels its power slipping. And I think we could say, you know, arguably we could say the same about capitalism in our moment as the models and the cosmology of the system begins to come apart uh, as its material reality changes, we begin to see it enact ever more violence, including forms of epistemic violence. Um, now, just to close that point, I would say that I think there's actually a really amazing new generation of young economists, especially feminists and people coming from the global south, who are questioning some of the fundamental uh, principles of economics, but doing so you know, maybe sometimes under the matter of heterodox economics or anti-colonial economics, but they're still trying to retain some of the very powerful tools that economics provides for managing life in common, which is what we need economics to do. I mean, we do need specialists in a global world to help us figure out global supply chains after we abolish capitalism. Uh, maybe we'll relocalize a lot of production. I hope we will. But, you know, there's no way to localize the production of, an, of a, you know, a MacBook. Pro. Right. Maybe we won't make that a priority, but you know, like we do need people who are thinking in about the nuts and bolts of how to manage and maneuver an abstract system that is sublime in its components. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe then the second thing I would say about that is like, I mean, this debate about inflation seems to me to miss the point completely, which is the problem isn't that prices are going up. The problem is vast and merciless and murderous inequality. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's the problem with inflation is inflation is bad because most people are poor. It's not bad in and of itself. So if we took all of the money in the world and we redistributed it, you know, equally or relatively equally, I think then we could have an adult conversation about inflation and what to do about it. But right now, basically, what you have is this debate about inflation, which is often framed in the most abstract senses and what to be done about it. But what's to be done about it is always framed as like, well, how are you going to support capitalism and corporations rather than pointing out the fact that 
the problem here is that there's rising fuel prices and food prices for people who can't afford it because they're at the you know they're getting the 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 dirty end of a 40-year stick of class warfare um so the debate about uh, i think the reason why the debate about inflation is so murky and so impossible is because it's actually hiding something huge. Essentially, it's a proxy for us actually talking about the real underlying issues. And underneath the issue of inequality is an even deeper, more thorny, more difficult issue, which is not just about how we're going to distribute the wealth that already exists in the world. Um, you know, if magically we could wave a magic wand and just equalize the amount of dollars in everyone's bank account, that's impossible. But it also, that debate around inequality, and I think this is a very important point in David Graeber's and David Wengrow's recent book, The Dawn of Everything, the debate about inequality also hides another debate, which is about how value is even produced in a society, what kind of work people are doing and how and under what conditions. And it also hides another fundamental question, which is of care and of freedom. Like, mm -hmm. rather than discussing even inequality, I think we should take a step back and say, like, how are we as a species, let's say, going to take responsibility for ourselves as an interconnected global entity that has very particular powers and very particular responsibilities on this planet? And among those are providing care for one another and the more than human world and securing a sense of freedom that allows us to each obtain as close as we can our incredible potential as individuals and collectivities and also respects you know the the world and its uh its abundance as well i think those deep philosophical questions are begging to be asked underneath these questions of inequality and inflation mm -hmm. you have uh a really remarkable capacity to express terrifying realities in, in beautiful ways <laughs> I want to say that. Um, and the book does does that. I mean, in the way that, you know, we mentioned Anna Singh's Mushroom at the End of the World. This is a book that, you know, I've interviewed Singh about that book. And she has this kind of um, odd friction with her own impact mm -hmm. in that book. Like she she kind of felt as though the book was too conducive to a convenient kind of hope. And, and so, you know, she kind of wrestles with that. But I think, you know, they're invaluable, these things, for for giving people, you know, a source of you know, pleasure in, in gleaning insight that takes you out of, you know, a moment where things do feel too big and too close, too overwhelming. And yeah, like the book is, is still a source of, of something like inspiration in the sense that you're saying like, we are quote wealthier than we have ever been. And yet mil millions suffer. Um, you know, we, we are, we are being convinced of this kind of fantasy of scarcity that allows, you know, ethno-nationalists, like the ones that, took up, you know, an occupation in Ottawa and across, you know, various parts of North America and even Europe, like these, the so-called freedom convoys to say like our freedom, uh, which is to say white freedom is threatened by uh, needy others, as you put it in the book, mm. um, you know, the, against the rise of that kind of eco-fascist race realism, you're saying like there is abundant, you know, adequate abundance. It is just unfairly shared. Um and, you know, I mean, I think there, there's something about this book and, and certainly Thornton's The Hologram that is about trying to like reinvigorate what, what Thornton calls the caring muscle. You know, you call it our shared narrative muscle. Um, she calls it the caring muscle. Huh. Um, and I think the, this is the idea is that there's an attempt by these texts to sort of, um, you know, educate, but also to kind of help people exercise something that is atrophied 
underlaid capitalism to some extent. But I guess I wanted to, you know, also see if you wanted to share any thoughts on, you know, it's odd to maybe gesture this at this point, but there are moments clearly, you know, where um, responsibility is not slippery, right? The book is about how, you know, it's difficult to tell the story of palm oil because it is so sublimely complex and the responsibility is so hard to track in some ways. But, mm-hmm. you know, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been talked about endlessly in terms of the difficulty of assigning just, you know, responsibility to one maniacal person in Vladimir Putin. Um, the story of NATO in that sort of conflict is is either effaced or it's included in this way that is so divisive. But, you know, I wanted to ask you about the recent and ongoing Israeli attacks on the Al-Aqsa mm. Mosque and this, you know, the promotion, for example, of the idea by Israeli settlers of sacrificing a goat in the mosque in order to reclaim it, like this kind of resurfacing of sacrifice as, as like a settler technology, right? Like that would necessarily be considered, a, a you know, a provocation and a sacrilege. You know, there are moments where it feels at least like responsibility is not slippery. And, you know, your book is engaging with sacrifices as a political practice historically. How have you been yourself, given the way that, for example, revenge capitalism begins, understanding this kind of endless cycle of settler violence Mm. and its effacement within the kind of global media um, you know, and the kind of privileging in some ways of Ukrainian suffering over these other forms of suffering in Yemen and Palestine. Oh, wow. I mean, it's an amazing question, but it's such a huge one. Um, maybe I would here begin by going to an observation that's been made by a number of indigenous um, theorists, uh, especially indigenous theorists, I think, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I've heard this argument made at certain times by Lee Maracle, among others, that what Europeans encountered when they began their settler colonial project of the Americas was an abundance they could no longer imagine. You know, the the Europeans, you know, even before they began their settler colonial adventures overseas, had really, you know, viciously fought over the resources, the dwindling resources of Europe, the forests, even by the moments when uh, Columbus set sail, were heavily depleted. Um, You know, many of the mines in Europe for silver and other minerals were depleted. Um, And what they, and and in some ways, the cosmology of colonialism that would eventually evolve, or let's say devolve into the, cap- the cosmology I'm associating with capitalism, which also has its roots in patriarchy and other forms of domination, domination of the earth, domination of children, domination of women, domination of, you know, domination through the gender binary, etc. Um, this mm-hmm. all has at its root a fundamental presumption of scarcity. And the presumption that scarcity is natural and normal rather than something that's produced. And I mean produced on two levels. Produced materially in the sense that elites take, smash and grab and take what they want. But also the entire idea of scarcity is a socially produced discourse. The idea, I mean, there, there might be abundance, there might be a lack of something. But the idea that there's this persistent thing called scarcity is itself a discursive construction that is used in order to keep populations in line say we don't we simply mm. will never have enough of this thing you know there's always going to be a scarcity of resources and therefore you need a strong sovereign to implement it i think what europeans 
encountered, especially in what we now term indigenous civilizations, but also around the world, is that other civilizations don't perceive the world in that way and also live without a sense of scarcity. And I think that is highly, highly disruptive to the structures of power and also to the cosmology that people believe in. And so that explains to a certain extent what part of the abiding viciousness and vengefulness of settler violence. It's always about destroying this other possibility of the, that the other represents, that you might live without scarcity, that you might live in a better relationship with the non-human world that doesn't mean you're constantly depleting quote-unquote resources, that you might live without the notion that you might live with an idea that the world is in flux fundamentally, and these things we call resources might come and go at different times. But in any case, uh, a sort of perception that you, that the world could be without scarcity. I think here I turn, and one of the theorists who's sort of all the way through this book uh, as a major influence to the work of Georges Bataille, the French radical theorist, who, you know, basically in the starting in the 1950s and 60s, began to completely reconstruct political economy based not on the fundamental problem of scarcity. And, you know, like if you go to any economics class and you look at the first paragraph of any economics textbook, it'll basically in one form or another say the problem that economics tries to solve is the problem of scarce resources. Rather, Bataille begins and says, what if the problem was always overabundance? And the thing that's needed to deal with overabundance isn't markets as it is to deal with scarcity. The problem with abundance is dealt with through sacrifice. And what Bataille plays out for us is the idea that all societies practice sacrifice. There is, for Bataille, an overabundance of solar radiation for the needs of the planet, um, which is, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a physics sense, absolutely true. Um, mm -hmm. But even for cultures that aren't practicing the har harvesting of solar radiation for electricity, there's still an incredible abundance as, as plants photosynthesize uh, sunlight into uh, carbon-based energy forms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so for Bataille, he's asking us to think about questions of metabolism, which links to an interesting set of Marxist discourses about you know, what Marx called the metabolic rift between capitalism and the earth. And Bataille's asking us to think, like, what if we were to change our whole understanding of what an economy is to re-embed it within the structures of society and cosmology, but recognize every society always is committing acts of sacrifice, but some forms of sacrifice are more violent and less violent than others. And the most violent forms of sacrifice, Bataille tells us, are the ones that can't admit that they're forms of sacrifice. So here he's influenced by someone like Tzvetan Todorov's quite phenomenal book, The Conquest of the Americas, about the encounter between Cortes and Moctezuma uh, at the destruction of the Aztec Empire, where Todorov says, you know, look at the two forms of sacrifice occurring here. Sure, the Aztecs did commit human sacrifice. They were an empire. They were brutal. Um, they collected tributes from vassal nations and mercilessly slaughtered them. But they also, at various times, adopted people into their community and made them part of the family so that the sacrifice would be worthy of the gods. He says a society of sacrifice is fundamentally different. It's not, he's not saying it's good, but he's saying it's fundamentally different on many levels than a society of massacre, as he calls it, and as he identifies the Europeans with the society of massacre, where those who are being sacrificed are reduced to utter worthlessness, who are just considered to be, you know, not even worthy of sacrifice. You know, when the when the Europeans came and slaughtered 
millions of indigenous people, they weren't doing it to appease their Christian God, to feed their Christian God as the Aztecs were. It was simply that they rendered these people through their cosmology and ideology completely worthless and therefore completely disposable. What Bataille argues is that in many civilizations you do have sacrifice, including human sacrifice, but often if you zoom out and you look at it, it is relatively less violent. Now, where does this leave us in terms of like our present? Like, I'm obviously not suggesting we go back to sacrificing people. I am suggesting that we are always already sacrificing people. Uh, and that our capitalist society is incredibly violent in its sacrificial customs, precisely because we can't admit that they're sacrificial. But I wonder what it would mean for us to re-enchant economics in some way with a notion that in fact the problem we have to deal with is not only the abundance of the more than human world, but the abundance of the human imagination and the abundance of humanity's cooperative potentials. Um, and from that starting point, recognize that the problem we face is not that we're running out of resources, but that the whole way that we frame the world as a set of resources to be exploited, that the problem is perhaps about how we organize our cooperative potential and imaginative potential together, rather than, you know, simply how we're going to fight over the scraps left behind as civilization falls apart. And I'm trying my best to always bring myself back to this orientation like a distracted puppy who's always getting distracted by the chaos of the street around it but trying to focus on that magical thing that we share which is this cooperative imaginative potential and if there's one thing that i really want readers to take away from the book it's not just the horrific story about palm oil it's that underneath palm oil hidden in plain sight is that is an incredible story about how humans have worked with a plant to radically transform the planet mm -hmm. in a way that seemingly no other species is capable of doing and that there's a power there that is our collective birthright um, it's a power that is not an individual power but a collective power a cooperative power and that if we can somehow come to terms with that that's going to be the power through which we can develop a means to transform the world and avoid the kind of scenarios that the eco-fascists, you know, fantasize about, where in the name of dealing with this persistent problem of scarcity, we license ourselves to make heinous and constant sacrifices. Um, yeah, I mean, Anna Singh and uh, her co-curators and co-authors in the Feral Atlas Project you know, right, just simply things did not have to work out th this way and they still might change. Um, and yeah, I think there is uh, a lot of that same spirit in this book. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, thanks so much. I'm really, really grateful. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Maintain that focus <laughs> on, um, you know, the, the, the power of the imagination. I'm sure you will. You know, it's a wonder to behold in the work that you produce is that balance um, and the, the threshold that you have uh, for engaging with the, the most troubling aspects um, of what we do as a species, uh, to other species, to ourselves. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks so much. I mean, I really, I always enjoy talking to you and you're such a good, uh, thoughtful, broad-minded, close reader. It helps me remember what I like about the book. Um, which, you know, at a publication date often you forget. So I, I want to really thank you for your, your attention and excellent questions and continued dedication to helping people make complex ideas accessible to people through this podcast.